The last time uh, we looked at Mark's gospel, uh, we saw how Christ was given what was what amounted to a mock trial uh, by the chief priests and Jewish rulers. Uh, we saw how uh, they weren't interested in the truth. Uh, they weren't interested in uh, a righteous judgment. They simply hated Christ and they wanted him dead. And at the end of uh, our last reading about three weeks ago, uh, we saw how they uh, found Christ guilty and now they deliver him up to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And the reason they did that was because the Jewish leaders didn't have authority themselves to sentence anyone to death. Uh, That authority lay with the uh, Roman overlords uh, who controlled Israel at this time. And so they deliver Christ up to Pontius Pilate and he questions Jesus. Uh, But in his questioning, he's not able to find anything that Christ has done wrong. Uh, In all of his questions... There's nothing that would be worthy of death in Christ. Nevertheless, the crowds are baying for Christ's blood. Uh, They insist that Christ must be crucified. And so uh, Pilate is caught, at least from his perspective, in a difficult situation. Uh, If he doesn't listen to the crowds, then they may turn on him. And if news of this gets back to Caesar, then his job, and perhaps even his life, is on the line. Uh, But on the other hand, he has the unpleasant option of sending an innocent man to be crucified. So he comes up with a kind of halfway house, a different plan. And you can see this plan in verse 6. God's word reads, Now at the feast, he, that's Pontius Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he he had always done for them. Now, Pilate was a, a shrewd politician, and he knew that he could garner uh, a certain amount of goodwill by releasing once a year uh, a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner, at the Passover time. And uh, he did this in order to kind of uh, appease the crowds and hopefully extend his time in power. And it was coming to that time of year again. It was that time of year again, the Passover. And so he sees a small glimmer of an opportunity how he can appease the crowds And yet also release Christ. And he says to the crowd, who do you want me to release to you? Uh, Do you want me to release an evil, wicked murderer, a man called Barabbas? Or do you want me to release to you Jesus? And what he hopes they're going to say is, oh, given that choice, we would rather have Jesus. Uh, We don't want the 
the wicked, evil, murderous Barabbas. And Pilate hoped by giving them this choice, he would uh, appease their anger uh, while also letting Jesus go free. Uh, But to his horror, the crowd chooses Barabbas. They say we would rather have this murderer set free than Jesus. You might hear that and read that and think, how could that be so? How could a crowd of people choose a murderer over Jesus? Who would possibly make that sort of choice? But this passage shows us that there were at least three factors, three circumstances which led to this bizarre, crazy choice from the crowd. And this evening I'd just like to look at those three choices, these three factors, and see what we can learn from them in our own lives. Now, the first factor is the malice of the chief priests, the malice of the chief priests. Look at verse 9. Uh, it says, But Pilate answered them, that's answered the crowd who were asking for Christ to be crucified. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. We're told here that Pilate knew that it was the envy of the chief priests and the rulers that had led to them delivering Christ to them. He could see that Christ was innocent and he saw the hatred and the malice and the envy of the high priests, uh, the priests and the rulers of the Jews and how they were stirring up the crowds to choose Barabbas and not Christ. Uh, as I said, we saw this last time in their trial of Christ or the trial of Christ. Uh, We saw how they were not interested in the slightest with the truth of the situation. They weren't interested in in being good judges and deciding what Jesus actually deserved. They were completely dominated by their hatred and their malice and their envy of him. And because of that, they stirred up the crowds against them, against Jesus. And this leads to the second factor. Now, we've seen the malice of the chief priests, but we also see the madness of the crowd. The madness of the crowd. Look at verse 12. Now, I'll read from verse 11. It says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. By this point, the crowd is in a frenzy. And they're not willing to listen to any sort of reason. They simply want Christ's death. It's a strange thing. that There's a a deep-seated Thing inside us 
which makes us think the majority must be right. Have you noticed this? That for some reason, we don't like going against a crowd. Uh, we think, well, so many people can't be wrong. You've probably heard that phrase before. How could so many people be wrong? Uh, we seem hardwired to listen to the majority of people. Uh, some people get through life by doing that. Listen to what the majority say and go along with that. Because for some unknown reason, we think that is a good guide for truth. But that's nonsense. Uh, Individuals can be wrong. We all know that. And a crowd is just a big group of individuals. And if individuals can be wrong, crowds can be wrong as well. And crowds can be swayed by a very few people. Uh, One or two charismatic, influential people can sway a whole crowd. Uh, Just look in recent history to the um, Nazi Germany. Uh, A charismatic ruler can sway millions in the right circumstances. Don't trust the wisdom of crowds. Don't trust merely what the majority say. And we need to be careful of this. Uh, Because although we may nod and agree, it's very easy to fall into this trap. Uh, It is possible that there are people in our society uh, that we hate, even if we wouldn't say that word, or who we strongly dislike, merely because the TV has told us to. Merely because the magazine has told us to. Merely because the newspaper has told us to. And we take all our ideas from what we've heard the majority say. It's so easy, isn't it, to jump on the bandwagon, isn't it? To just go along with what everyone else is saying, because it's convenient, because it's easy. It's easy to go along with the current because we think there's safety in a crowd. But that's not true. There isn't safety in a crowd. It's always wise to withhold judgment until you know something for sure for yourself. Don't merely trust the general consensus Better to withhold judgment and not make a decision one way or the other than to judge merely based on hearsay. That's exactly what is happening here. This crowd has been whipped up into a frenzy by the chief priests and they're baying for the blood of the Son of God himself. You cannot trust the wisdom of crowds. Sometimes a crowd might be right. But just as often, it can be wrong. That's the second factor which led to this great travesty of injustice, the madness of the crowd. So we've seen first the malice of the chief priests. Secondly, we've seen the madness of the crowd. But thirdly, we see the cowardice of Pilate. Uh, The cowardice of Pilate. Did you notice what it said in verse 15? Uh, Mark writes, So Pilate 
wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. Do you hear that little phrase? Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Jesus to them. Now, Pilate knew the truth. He knew what was happening. We know that because it says in verse 10, he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He knew it was the chief priests who were wicked, not Jesus. Nevertheless, he still released Jesus, or um, released, uh, delivered Jesus to the crowd. Uh, he even understood the craziness, the madness of the crowd. Uh, did you notice how he tried to reason with them in verse 12? It says, Pilate answered and said to them again, what then, oh, sorry, no, he says in verse 14, then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? Pilate can see clearly, and he knows what the crowd wants is entirely irrational and unjust. More than that, he knew the innocence of Christ. He said earlier uh, in the passage, uh, in, um, I can't, can't see the verse offhand, but he says, I can find nothing wrong with him. What evil has he done? Uh, Pilate was under no illusions about the innocence of Christ. But despite all of that, he was driven by a greater passion. He was driven by his fear of what would happen if he did the right thing. He was afraid of what the crowd would do and what that would mean for him if he did what he knew to be right. And this is the terrible thing uh, about evil about wickedness, about sin. Uh, We like to think, don't we, that when we're reasoning with someone that if only we can get them to understand the situation, if only we can make them see, if only we can make them see sense, then they'll behave in the right way. Uh, We try to reason with people and we think, well, if only they could get a right grasp of the situation, then they'd be different. We might think that about ourselves. We might think, well, if only I understood better, or if only my circumstances were different, if only things outside of me were better, then I wouldn't do evil either. But that's not true. Uh, Evil is deeper than that. The reason we do evil is ultimately because of our own selfishness. The reason we do evil is because fundamentally... We want to. Pilate had perfect understanding here. Uh, He didn't hand over Jesus to be crucified because he was ignorant. Uh, He didn't hand Jesus over because he did not have the power not to. He had complete authority to release Christ. Uh, He didn't hand Jesus over to the crowd because he'd been neglected as a child or because some unfortunate circumstance had happened in his life. Pilate handed Christ over because he was a coward. That was the issue. He was more concerned about doing what was easy 
than doing what was right. And that can so often be, well, practically always is, our issue as well. We might have unfortunate circumstances that we're in. We may not understand everything as we would like to understand. But ultimately, when we do evil, we do it because it's easier than doing what is right. Or at least we think it is. The third factor which led to this travesty of justice is the cowardice of Pilate. So we see this kind of horrific picture of human evil, don't we? And perhaps we see ourselves uncomfortably reflected in it, uh, whether it's in the malice of the chief priests and their envy, or in the madness of the crowd going along with what everyone else is saying, or in the cowardice and the um, uh, wimpiness of Pilate. But how did Jesus react to all of this? Uh, What did Jesus do in the face of all this evil and injustice? How did he respond to the religious leader's malice? How did he respond to the crowd's madness? And how did he respond to Pilate's cowardice? Well, we're told in verses 3 to 5, it says, And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Jesus said nothing. And it's no wonder that Pilate was amazed. In the face of all this terrible injustice, Jesus didn't say a word. We would have done, wouldn't we? All of us would have done. Uh, We would be uh, vehemently protesting our innocence at every opportunity if we were in Christ's shoes. Uh, We would be pointing out the horrible injustice which is happening here. Uh, The irrationality, the cruelty, the malice. And yet Jesus doesn't say a word. He remains completely silent. Why? Why does he stay silent? The answer is because Jesus ultimately wasn't concerned about the chief priests, even though they hated him as much as they did. Uh, He wasn't concerned ultimately about the anger of the crowds, even though they were yelling for his blood. And ultimately, Jesus wasn't concerned about Pontius Pilate, even though Pontius Pilate literally had his life, at least from a human point of view, in his hands. Jesus wasn't concerned about any of those things which we naturally would be so concerned about. What concerned Christ most of all? Well, we read it in an earlier chapter. Do you remember what Christ said in Gethsemane? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he fell flat on his face, and in verse 36 of chapter 14, Christ prayed, Abba, Father, 
all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What Jesus was most concerned about was obeying his father, was doing what his father said. And his father had given him a very clear answer. There is no other way. You must go through with this. And so when the chief priests told lies about him, he stayed silent. When the crowd bade for his blood, he stayed silent. When Pilate was holding his life by a thread, he stayed silent. Because he was more concerned about obeying his father than he was about all these external threats. And what's the result? The result was Jesus, as we will learn in later weeks, was that he lost his life. But as a result, millions have been saved. And millions more, we trust, will be saved. Because Jesus put his Father's will above his own. He was driven by something greater than merely concern for his own life. His love for his father and ultimately his love for us overrode his natural concern for his own life. This is where we see most clearly God's love for us. Um, None of us, I think, would have been able to stand silent in such a situation, in such a flagrant disregard of justice but Jesus did because he loved his father and he loved us and he was willing to go through it that many might be saved and I like to think that Barabbas was one of the first Uh, I don't know if you know this but the name Barabbas means son of his father Bar means son of and Abbas is father So Barabbas was son of his father, and some speculate that maybe he was an orphan, or um, uh, for whatever reason he was born and was not given a name, so they gave him a name, son of his father, like all boys are. Uh, He was given this generic name, Barabbas. But of course, in a sense, we're all Barabbas. We're all children of our father. And I don't think that's an accident. Uh, I don't think that's an accident in God's providence. Uh, Because in a small picture here, we see what Christ accomplished on the cross. Barabbas, the sinner, Barabbas, the murderer, Barabbas, the evil man, goes free. But Jesus, the innocent man, is punished. And that, in a nutshell, of course, is the gospel. We are sinners. We are like the chief priests to a greater or lesser extent. We are like the crowd. Don't fool yourself that you would have been different than the crowd standing, baying for Christ's blood. We are like Pilate, so often cowardly, more inclined to do what is easy than what is right. We are like Barabbas in that cell. But Jesus pays the penalty for us. And like Barabbas walked free we can walk free as well. 
That's the wonderful glory of the gospel. Uh, This passage, perhaps more clearly than any other, shows us the depths of human evil. It shows us how far human beings have sunk to crucify the Son of God himself. And yet, at exactly the same time, it shows us the wonderful grace of God. That even when man is at his wor- his, its worst, God is at his best. And we see his love and his grace. And I trust over the next few uh, weeks, as we continue to look at this passage on the crucifixion, we will see even more clearly uh, the wonderful grace and love of Christ in the face of our sin and our uh, wickedness against him. Uh, but with those thoughts in mind, I want to close by singing uh, another hymn on the theme of the crucifixion. And um, I perhaps should have mentioned earlier, um, I hope your sheet is a different one to this morning because uh, I changed the last hymn uh, this evening. So um, hopefully you will have the right hymn on the back of your sheet. Uh, the hymn is, Oh, to see the dawn. Of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. So we'll close by singing our final hymn on the back of your sheet.